0: Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am very excited to introduce our guest today. It's Dr. Michael Fratkin with Resolution Care Network, and he is the founder and CEO. Dr. Fratkin, welcome.
1: Hi, Lynn. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about you know, your your own background. What is Resolution Care Network? What's the deal?
1: Well, my own background is as interesting and boring as everybody else's. I grew up in upstate New York. I was a ski bum. I was a fisherman in Alaska. I did some mountaineering and long wow. and short of it as I found my way to medical training um, mm-hmm. and um, a real interest in the human lived experience of very serious illness. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I can tell you a little bit about Resolution Care Network. We launched uh, in the context of my burnout, frankly, uh, about five years ago. Um, I was, uh, I I am, I live here in far northern California, Humboldt County. We're about five hours north of San Francisco. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I work for a small health system um, and built out first uh, hospital based consultation program in palliative care and then
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, a, a small outpatient clinic based program and for seven to ten years I couldn't beg borrow or steal the resources needed to do the good and important work of providing the extra layer of support that palliative care really is whether you're hospitalized mm-hmm. or whether you're Mm -hmm. dealing with a cancer diagnosis. Um, And, oh, it's just so frustrating. I I had for years and years four or five times as much work as I could possibly do by myself or with my part-time social worker at the hospital.
2: Mm -hmm. And,
1: uh, you know, I made presentations. I created PowerPoint presentations. I wrote business plans, got help from others, and still I couldn't basically get a stapler. (laughs) out of the system because you know it's just hard hard for them in a rural hospital to invest in something that they kind of didn't really understand quite so well. Um, Now after I produced the program and delivered them value over time they still had a hard time uh, putting the resources to meet the need Um, and so I just got super frustrated in 2014 and um, a couple of ideas came to my mindset. One was this smartphone in my pocket, this crazy little uh, supercomputer that I carried around all day long, uh, mm-hmm. seemed to have some value as a potential tool for doing um, my work. Um, Project Echo, which you could talk about with yeah. um, mm-hmm. another day, but Project Echo just seemed like a great way to share expertise, in a Mm -hmm. powerful way so that other people could get good at primary palliative care. Mm
2: -hmm. And then
1: a friend of mine who was a graphic designer and artist needed a large format printer for her studio.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: um, she crowdfunded the money that she needed. And in a couple of weeks, she had twice the gizmo that she was trying to finance. Um, Mm -hmm. And everybody had fun jumping in to help her achieve what was needed for her business. So by... November of that year, which was pretty well-timed, one um, Day's book, Being Mortal, came out. The Institute of uh, Medicine, uh, second report on dying in America, uh, came out. And a young woman in California, Brittany Menard, a young woman with a um, brain tumor, uh, moved okay. to Oregon and uh, spent much of the last few months of her life uh, promoting... Um, own um, choice in relationship mm-hmm. to uh, the care that she wanted to receive. All those things mm-hmm. drew attention to the topic. And when I launched my crowdfunding campaign in November, I successfully raised about $140,000. Wow.
2: And by
1: January, yeah, that was kind of amazing. My daughter was yeah. the first donor, $18.33 from her piggy bank. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. And then in in, in January we walked into a donated uh, office space. A colleague Uh of mine who had an urgent care let us move in upstairs. So myself Uh and an administrative assistant uh, walked in the door and pulled the trigger on building a completely home-based, well-composed team, nurse, social worker, doctor, uh, chaplain, community health worker, um, coordinator, the whole team, Mm-hmm. Uh, a home based team that used technology and telemedicine to provide mm-hmm. care. Um,
2: That's and an awesome uh, story. fast That's forward, awesome.
1: it's quite a story, huh? Kind of yes. crazy. I, I have to tell you, it took at least three tanker trucks full of coffee to achieve what <laughs> we've achieved.
0: <laughs> Just hook it up, Ivy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it would have been better, but I didn't have a pharmacist at hand like you.
0: Um, you have pharmacists now, now on and, your team, though.
1: Um, we have pharmacists available to us, but no, we yeah. haven't been able to add that to our team.
0: Sadly. I see.
1: Um, but I've, okay. I've called on you a time or two. That's right. <laughs>
0: that's right. It's on a wish list. <laughs> Definitely.
1: Um, so, so now... What, what I'll tell you is where we are in five years later, Just to, and then we'll, we'll move through, yeah. but I want to give people sure. a sense of what we've built. Um, Please. In these five years, we've built uh, a team of about 35 employees. We Mm -hmm. take care of about 200 people in their homes, um, and uh, we've touched the lives of probably, I think the number is probably 1,300 people and families that would have otherwise had no access to any palliative care uh, have gotten really inspired and wonderful palliative care.
0: And they would not have had access because of their geographic location?
1: Well, there just wasn't any palliative care program doing work in the home until right. we built it.
0: That's amazing. I mean,
1: I mean, we're not unique. I mean, rural America is short on all kinds of resources. Sure. And 30, 25, 30% of Americans live in um, beyond the suburbs. Um, yeah. And even within urban centers and populated regions, mm-hmm. access to palliative care is dismal. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so up here in the hills, nobody is building programs specifically designed for rural populations uh, before we show up. And
0: And insurance companies cover this service for the patients?
1: Well, insurance companies, it turns out, are our best partners. So we have four value-based contracts uh, Uh with uh, health plans that – align their desire for better quality care, better satisfaction, and uh, avoidance of excess wasteful utilization with our commitment to improve quality of life, symptom control, coordination, care, um, and uh, optimal decision support and communication support um, Mm -hmm. in value-based contracts, contracts that pay us on a monthly basis for people they determine to be eligible for the mm-hmm. resource.
0: That's awesome. And I'm sure you have very high satisfaction ratings from your patients and families.
1: We do. We do. Because we'll, we, the truth is when I tell them when I first introduce myself mm-hmm. to them is we actually don't take care of any patients.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: just take care of people. Mm-hmm. And that's that's built into the DNA of our Organization. The reason we did yeah. this, the reason we launched, the reason we built our system of care and our model and our platform
0: mm-hmm.
1: is because we actually care about the lived experience of human beings that have serious illness, uh-huh. not the serious illnesses themselves.
0: I remember one time I lectured with Dr. Steven Penlett, from, also from California, mm-hmm. and hearing him explain palliative care, that if palliative care were a medication, every patient would want it prescribed for them and every doctor would want to write for it. I think that's That's so profound.
1: There's recent data from the Center to Advance Palliative Care from um, Mm CAPSI that sort of confirms what Mark Gans from Regents and Cambia has been saying for years. He's been saying that if people really understood what it was, you know, 95% of people would would want it. And what uh, CAPSI did, the leadership of Diane Meyer, is they actually studied what would happen if we really told people who might have a need for palliative care, what it was, how many of them would want it, and, and Mark was maybe a little hyperbolic, as the you know from his point of view. But it was about 80 to 90 percent of people when they understood what it actually was, um, mm-hmm. said they would want it for themselves or the people mm-hmm. they love.
0: Absolutely. So tell me how your team actually makes visits to these patients out uh, down all these country roads, or telehealth, or what do you do? <laughs>
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, um, COVID-19 has been an extraordinary force, a muscular force, not just on
2: mm-hmm.
1: the Resolution Care Network, but uh, on every aspect of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody would have been able to anticipate or predict that the kind of changes in behavior that have occurred across the planet could occur mm-hmm. as quickly as they have. Um, but yeah. they have. Um, about two weeks ago, we started the week with about 40, 45% of everything we do, do done by video conferencing, mm-hmm. and by Wednesday of that week, we were at 100% wow. of all of the work that we're doing is done by video conferencing.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: we d- did that because we really do care about the safety of the vulnerable people we care for, and we really do care about the safety of the people that work with us, uh, our our workforce, and their families, and the vulnerable people in their lives. So we couldn't uh, mandate a switch like that without Mm -hmm. the presence of COVID-19, but Mm -hmm. we discovered that we could do it rather quickly. And so the couple of hundred people we have under care are all being seen 100% by telemedicine. What's interesting for us, since we've been using quite a lot of this technology uh, for these last five years, is that nobody really noticed the difference. The people under our care didn't really notice. Mm -hmm. Um, The biggest change for our workforce is um, they had to get past their own biases against it and their own desire to want to go visit and hold hands and hug and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but they're, they're struggling, and like everybody else is, to learn how to work from home. Um, mm-hmm. But they're able to work from home, and they're able to be first responders, really, in healthcare mm-hmm. without placing themselves or the people under their care at risk of transmission of this terrible virus.
0: So has the nature of your work changed at all since the COVID virus? For example, palliative care, I just interviewed Dr. Arif Kamal earlier today, <clears throat> talking about how palliative care has really come to the forefront. And it's, it's certainly it's pain and symptom management, but it's, it's things like helping transition people off of a ventilator. How do you do event withdrawal? It's the goals of care conversations. It's anticipatory grief from the patients and the family. So has the nature of your interventions changed at all?
1: Um, Because we're home-based, though we're developing programs that provide consultation in the hospital, because we're home-based, what's changed is that we've been able to mitigate the anxieties for the most uh, vulnerable folks um, through Mm -hmm. the technology. What's changed is that COVID has entered the conversation. It's Mm -hmm. allowed us to go deeper with Mm -hmm. goals of care conversations for people that aren't ketering on the edge uh, or going to the emergency room. It's allowed us to be more effective uh, keeping people out of the hospital um, because we, they, they, they no longer default uh, in a circumstance of uh, change to wanting to just skedaddle over to the emergency room. Nobody wants to go to the hospital. Nobody wants to go to the emergency room. And quite frankly, the hospitals and the emergency rooms don't want people that can be managed as an outpatient coming through their doors right mm-hmm. so it's changed our ability to do the things that have always been important to us which is to mm-hmm. manage people where they are keep them safe keep their quality of life and their uh, intentions and preferences front of mind um it's also changed i think um the impressions that people have with palliative care somehow um the, the impact Uh, and extent of the threat Mm -hmm. has got people thinking about what it means to look at human beings dealing with serious illness as the human Mm -hmm. beings they are. Mm -hmm. It's not business as Mm -hmm. usual. It's not Mm -hmm. transactions. It's not procedures. It's not grinding through the delivery of some medical service, transaction by transaction. People get it because they're managing their own anxieties as the people that they are rather than just the health care providers that they are. Mm -hmm. They get it, being excluded from visitation in the hospital or being placed on a ventilator when you might not really know what that is, um, Mm -hmm. to be be threatened by mortality. Now on both sides of the equation, um, people Mm -hmm. with illness and then the people that serve the people with the illness, that threat, that presence of mortality has got people's radar receptive for understanding better what palliative care Mm -hmm. does. I mean, people like Steve and Steve Panelat and Arif and Diane Meyer and all of the folks that have been working um, in the background and my mentors for, you know, 20, 25 years um, have taken palliative care to um, nearly to the tipping point Mm -hmm. Um, I think that COVID-19 will take palliative care as an essential and integrated part of health care for seriously ill folks. I think Mm -hmm. it will cross the threshold of that tipping point Mm -hmm. to where uh, at the other end of COVID-19, there will be a generally understood expectation that palliative care is a part of care uh, for everybody with a serious illness.
0: It seems like in a very sad sort of way, COVID has upped the game and the the seriousness and the street cred of palliative care. Would you agree?
1: I would agree entirely. And I mean, as a telemedicine guy, tele-palliative care guy, um, for five years, I've been telling the world, you know, telemedicine is actually better than real life. Mm -hmm. And the first time I say it, people kind of think about that. They go, hmm. And that's fascinating and provocative, Dr. Freckman. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: but the second time they hear it, they roll their eyes and figure, well, it's not as good as real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is, with um, these last few weeks, um, I would have said that telehealth and video-based encounters in real time would represent 50% or more of all healthcare provider, uh, encounters in the next five or ten years, if you'd have asked me a month ago. Um, mm-hmm. But I was wrong. It was actually five or ten days. And mm-hmm. now more than 50% of all direct um, uh, clinical encounters are happening by video conferencing and people are discovering how it is better than real life. hmm
0: so hopefully the virus <clears throat> will go away at some point, but do you believe that perhaps telehealth will have established a stronger foothold in the way we practice as a result of this?
1: Let me share the metaphors. The horse is out of the barn. The toothpaste mm-hmm. is out of the tube. The genie is out of the bottle. Nobody is going to be able to um, push tele- telehealth back into the fringe of healthcare delivery mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. this because Like I said, it's actually better than real life on an economic level as well as at a relational level. I mean, Mm -hmm. when people don't have to schlep themselves out of their homes and take time off or have their daughters take time off from work to come for quality of life care in a clinical setting,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um, they will not let this toothpaste get stuffed back into the tube
0: but aside from the patients and the families thinking that, I believe also our compatriots in healthcare also have come to see that as well. Do you agree?
1: I agree. I think that the framing yeah. of a video conference is such a unique and interesting new dimension or domain for mm-hmm. providing care. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's so many advantages to the um, providers once they get past all of their uh, pre-existing um, biases, get mm-hmm. some experience and start to realize how mm-hmm. much better it is for all parties, um, I think that they'll very much embrace this kind of um, engagement with people. And uh, the intimacy that's available uh, with the boundary that's built is far more efficient and far mm-hmm. more uh, impactful than uh, uh, flesh-to-flesh uh, environments where people have to either drag their poor, sorry selves into hospitals and clinic environments, or they have to accept a home invasion from a mm-hmm. home health professional. Um, I mm-hmm. think that uh, the professionals will realize that there's more efficiency, there's more um, boundary, there's more control and freedom um, for providing uh, the care. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. technology use, I mean, we, we all got used to using telephone.
0: Sure. Um,
1: I think we're going to get used to using these uh, technologies so, as well.
0: Is there a skill set we need to teach our healthcare provider colleagues as well as the patients to maximize the capability of telehealth? It's, not, it's more Absolutely. than clicking on the Zoom link.
1: That's for sure. That's for sure. Now, the COVID-19 has kind of gotten me to uh, jump into the realm of uh, contributing by teaching as much as possible. So I'm mm-hmm. doing uh, virtual office hours with capsi I'm doing a CHCF-funded uh, open forum on telehealth with uh, the Institute of Palliative Care in California. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm doing local grand rounds as well as uh, communication support and training for um, mm-hmm. the communities where we're active. Um, mm-hmm. We're working hard to try and teach people the basics. I mean, five years of doing it, I've learned many, many, many tricks. Some of them uh, take time to kind of integrate, uh, mm-hmm. but some of them I think we can uh, quick start by providing people a way of thinking about this new domain of treatment, uh, of, mm-hmm. of of, uh, of care, uh, so I'm, mm-hmm. um, that's why we're talking, Glenn, frankly, is that I want to spread the word about this. At the end of the day, Absolutely. Um, I won't be the only tele-palliative care provider out there, um, and I want to make sure that people get good at it quickly and comfortable yeah. with
0: it. You should uh, develop and teach a MOOC, a massive open online course. It doesn't have to be long, but... I agree. I think, you know, I have developed this online master of science program, and a lot of people are terrified of the technology. They'll say, I haven't been to school in 30 years, and now I have to use the computer. But it's true. With proper orientation, within about a week or so, the technology kind of just goes away, and they forget about it. But I do think that's an important learning curve. How do you say that? Multiple what? Multiple what did I say? I don't know. What did you say? You said a massive... Ma- oh, a that? MOOC, <laughs> massive online open course. It's like an online no, course. Uh, only, generally speaking, it. it's free. Like Stanford got offers it, at Harvard, all the big colleges offer MOOCs on a cool, variety I want to of topics. I totally think we do should a do a MOOC. I'll we should do a MOOC. Let's MOOC Maybe together. We could be That'll be the fun. the University of Maryland. There you go. Let's do it. Well, I have another <laughs> question. I think that COVID has opened the eyes of young people about the importance of advanced directives as we hear about these young doctors and nurses being affected. What are your thoughts? Have you seen that as well?
1: I have. Um, I'm having conversations with my daughter that are deep. She's a 14-year-old, I mean she's deeply asking the questions of what if. What if oh, somebody my. I love or what if even myself gets affected yeah. by this? And, mm. uh, yeah, she's well-trained as the daughter of a palliative care doctor to... Uh, think about some of these issues, but the depth at which she's inquiring um, mm-hmm. is much more substantial. Um, I think that this is a moment, some of which is going to be transient, sadly, uh, where everybody is um, having to deal with an, an invisible threat to their mortality. Now, before COVID-19, every one of us had the risk of getting cancer, or getting hit by a car, or a falling meteorite or some other such uh, calamity uh, of random, unexpected catastrophe, and we ignored Mm -hmm. it. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: sadly, I'm pretty sure we'll go back to that state um, in uh, the months to years that follow. Um, But in this moment, everybody is made aware of their own impermanence and Mm -hmm. having to deal with their anxieties, their fears, their sense of self, who and what is important when you're at present with your own mortality. And uh, um, for myself and for many of my palliative care colleagues, we find that living in this world with people who are facing their mortality is, is one way for us to remember uh, that mm-hmm. our own mortality uh, should have something to do with what we define as most important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we put our energy and how we balanced our lives and how we tend to our well-being and what are the mm-hmm. things that are most important to us. As palliative care professionals, um, we're all immersed in that world. At the, end, at the other end of COVID-19, we'll still be that way. Um, but for the moment, we're in the same boat as everybody else in the
0: society Sure. But building on that, what do you believe is palliative care's role or responsibility to our non-palliative colleagues to promote better self-care? This is a crazy time.
1: This is a crazy time. You know, um, I wish I could say that self-care was more uh, obvious or easy for me than it is for anybody else. Um, one of the things that this shelter-in-place uh, scenario has done is it's, it's brought me home. It's mm-hmm. had me become more aware of how I'm using my time and using my energy. Um, what I've had to do is I've had to carve out four hours every afternoon to share the responsibilities of uh, homeschooling my nine-year-old son. And what I realized trying to drag my phone around in those environments is that I can't actually divide my attention. That was mm-hmm. a that, – that, that, it's, a, it's a fallacy. And what I, what I realized is, uh, while I was bouncing on the trampoline with him trying to squeeze out his persuasive, persuasive essay, um, mm-hmm. is that we can't really um, divide our attention, but we can shift its focus. So mm-hmm. what I realize about myself is I can broadly focus um, on a whole lot of things. That's my natural tendency, but my resolution of all that information is low. In other words, I can get more information about, or I can get less information about more stuff, and that's good for a leader, and that's good for a you know people you know when you're trying to generate vision about the way to go and where to go, but it also leaves the people in your life feeling maybe unseen. And so Mm -hmm. what I'm learning to do is narrow my focus and direct it and target it to the people in my life, my wife, my daughter, and my son. Mm -hmm. And I can know more about less while giving them my targeted uh, attention. So I think everybody is learning new lessons and has this opportunity to see things differently and maybe clearer in how you know, they manage the relationships in their life, how they manage their intake of uh, food and nutrition, whether they really are able to uh, increase their um, well-being while locked inside the environment of their homes um i'm really aware of how much energy i'm putting out to work and how um there's been some sacrifices made by the people i love
0: and do you think when the virus goes away we'll retain those lessons or do you think they'll go the way of the virus
1: i'm committed that i will good i'm committed that i will um and my wife is going to keep an eye on me to make sure that i fulfill on that
0: (laughs) maybe we need to hold each other accountable I think we have to hold each other accountable for our well-being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let me close with one more thing. Get out your crystal ball. Mm-hmm. When do you mm-hmm. think this is going to wrap up? What are your thoughts? How long are we in this well, for? It
1: depends on it depends on how narrow you target your attention. Um, in terms of the horrendous loss of life and the enormous challenge to our healthcare systems. It will be many months before we can really recognize that we're on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be surprised if it feels normal in some way um, before six months passes. Mm -hmm. In terms of the impact on our society, um, it will be more like a year or two before we stop thinking about it. COVID-19 and coronavirus and its impact on all elements of our society and our sense of ourselves globally and all the rest of it. So it's going to yeah. be one of those experiences for my children and for my family that will kind of mark a uh, substantial change in the nature mm-hmm. of human beings. Now, I, I was thinking a lot about, about um, the Apollo missions and those photographs that came back. Um, in the early missions of that uh, big blue marble, the gorgeous uh, appearance of the planet Earth against the inky black emptiness of space, getting smaller Mm -hmm. and smaller as they move closer and closer to the moon. That was a a pivotal moment in human consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, This is more subtle, but on the other end of this uh, infection, people will feel their connection to all other human beings on the planet in a way that even communication technology couldn't accomplish over these last 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we are connected and vulnerable and a single species on a tiny little planet floating around in the inky vastness of the universe. That's important perspective, mm-hmm. and I don't think that will go away. I think people will understand they are part of a human family.
0: hmm Wow, pretty profound. <laughs> I drink a lot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts you want to share, Doctor Franken You're very enjoyable to speak with. oh I've
1: enjoyed it a lot. Um, these are the conversations that help me understand how to make all those smaller decisions in my life, as I sort of work from the higher elevations and then downward to choosing left, right, up, down, yes, no. So this is really important to me to have these opportunities to come back away take some deep breaths and think about the big picture.
0: Absolutely. Well, congratulations on your innovative model. Keep up the awesome work. And hopefully we'll chat again soon, maybe when we roll out your MOOC. How about that?
1: That sounds good.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson. I would like to thank Dr. Michael Fratkin for our amazing conversation, and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.
1: Thank you.